I want us now to turn to Isaiah 54. We're going to continue on with our sermon series as we go through Isaiah 54, because this is a powerful passage, a powerful passage that talks about the promises of God to those who have chosen to follow him. Now, can I ask you, do you understand the cross? Right now, you're probably thinking, oh my goodness, that's like uh, Christianity 101. As a matter of fact, it is like pre-Christianity 101. Of course, I understand the cross. Okay, that's great. And so Jesus died for our sins. So on the one hand, what that does is the implications means we're reconciled with God. And because of what he's done, we love him more. But on the other hand, it means that we're also free from shame, or according to the title of the message today, shame less. Okay? So turn with me now to Isaiah 54. We're going to start with verse 3. We're going to back up. The the focus, though, today is verses 4 to 10. I want to start with verse 3. Are you with me? For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in the desolate cities. Listen now. Do not Be afraid. You will not, excuse me, you will not suffer shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. I want you to underline, underscore, highlight that word widowhood. We're going to need to come back to that. For your maker is your husband. Underline or highlight that one as well. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who had married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment, I abandoned you. But with deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face for you, from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will never be shaken. Isn't that an amazing promise, church? Nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord. That's his name, covenantal name, Yahweh. Says the Lord, Yahweh, who has compassion on you. Notice in the very beginning, he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of what? Well, he lists it there. Don't be afraid of shame. Don't be afraid of disgrace, being humiliated. Don't be afraid. Don't for, you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. Well, first, do you remember who the barren woman is? This barren woman was Israel. Physically, it was Israel in exile. But do you remember spiritually in Galatians 4, Paul tells us that this barren woman is like Sarah who gave birth to children of promise, like Isaac. And, she, and Paul says, that's you and me. That's the Jews and the Gentiles. 
Remember Galatians 3, 28 and 29. Those who believe in Jesus, like Abraham, the man of faith, will become the seed of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. This is our inheritance. This is you and me. We are the descendants of the barren woman. So the barren woman represents the remnant under the new covenant. The Jews, first 10 years of the early church, the remnant, as they believe in Jesus, as they now come under this new covenant with their God with their husband, if you will. And then their descendants would be the church, the Jews, the Gentiles, everyone that that joins the church that becomes part of this new covenant, believers in Jesus, heirs of the promise. This is the barren woman and her descendants are you and me. But what about this reproach of your widowhood? Because who is this talking? You. Who is you? You is the barren woman and her descendants. Tells us that in verse 3. The barren woman and her descendants. So with regard to the barren woman, with regard to the Jews, the nation of Israel, how is it or what is the reproach of their widowhood? Think about that word widowhood. What does that mean? Who was Israel's husband? It, It was God. Widowhood means their husband did what? He didn't just leave her, he did, he died. You see, this is not God's picture of the problem. This is their picture of the problem. The problem was they went worshiping the Baals. They went, they committed idolatry. They turned to everyone, even kings and other nations to help them rather than God. They had not just abandoned God. They treated God as if God were dead. This wasn't in the land of Egypt. This was from the time of the judges until they were judged. Until God eventually abandoned them to the Assyrians and to the Babylonians, and they went into exile. Israel's widowhood was from their perspective, from their perspective, their God was dead. And they were under no rule or authority of him. They were free of him. At least, that's the way they acted. What was so amazing? Look at this. Do you see the word? But, what does it say? For your maker is your husband. Now, there are two Hebrew words for husband. There's a more common word, and then there's this word. This word is still used plenty of times in the Old Testament. But do you know what this Hebrew word is? Listen to this. It's the Hebrew word Baal or Baal. The word Baal literally means master and by implication, husband. And as a result, it's used both ways in the Old Testament. God is saying, you have worshiped the other Baals and you've considered me dead, but I am your Baal. I am your master. I am your husband. I have not abandoned you. Like that. I've not, I, I am still here. My arms are still extended. You're the one who has moved away. So, do you see this? Then it goes on and it says that as a result of them abandoning God, treating him as if he were dead, they were widowed, he calls them back as a wife deserted, distressed in spirit, rejected, for a moment abandoned. For a moment, it says, in a surge of anger, God hid his face from them. So I, I want to ask us, how does this then 
apply to us. Isaiah in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, is now prophesying to you and me under the New Covenant. Him in the Old Covenant, us in the New Covenant. How does this apply to us? Christian, does God ever abandon you? When you sin, does he ever turn away from you? Is that what he's saying here? That, that you know what, you sinned, and so I had to reject it. Does God ever do that for us? Now, for us to understand how Isaiah standing in the Old Covenant, and this is key to understanding this passage, and the implications are so rich, church. For us to understand Isaiah prophesying in the Old about the New, I want to show you a diagram on the board. I'm going to walk you through it. It is critical to understanding what Isaiah is trying to communicate here. So as you can see, the big circle under the old covenant represents Israel. Israel was a chosen nation, all of them. They entered into this physical covenant with the physical sign of circumcision. Everyone in Israel was a part of this covenant. If you obeyed the covenant, you received blessings. The, bl <clears throat> the promise then for being a part of this covenant was blessing. Understand this. <clears throat> Under this covenant and being a chosen nation, <clears throat> excuse me, should they follow the law? There was never a promise of life. This is important. They, could, they only received, Deuteronomy 28, blessings. Because this was the, because they had entered into this covenant through physical circumcision. Now, we see this even clearer in the new because it translates from the old covenant to the new, but there is an individual choosing or election. There are those who not only are circumcised in the flesh, but they're circumcised in the spirit. They're circumcised in the heart. And they are the ones who, like Abraham, believe God, and it was credited to them as righteousness. See, not all of Israel had that type of faith in their heart. And as a result, they did not experience life. They were not, as we would say, truly saved. There was no life, no eternal life promised to them. The only way to receive life was not by keeping the law, but by, but by believing as Abraham did and having it credited to him as you as righteousness. So if that was you, you were chosen as an individual. You had entered into this relational covenant with God, not only to receive blessings, but now life. The problem, though, is that these people here had abandoned God. All of these people had abandoned God. In Romans 11, it says, Elijah, who was a part of this group here, praying that all of these people would experience revival and turn to Yahweh again and become part of this group. Not just chosen as a nation, as a whole, as an entity, but chosen by God and having life imparted to them, okay? So here now is Isaiah. He's, un he's under this covenant and he's understanding this, that not everyone who is Israel 
is Israel, Romans 9. Not everyone who is of the true, of, of, of the large covenant with God physically was a part of that spiritual choosing individually and experienced life. Now, when we move to the new covenant, we see something interesting here. Remember the barren woman. The barren woman is who? The barren woman is the remnant. It's this group right here. Okay? And this is who Isaiah is prophesying about. But he goes on further to talk about the descendants, and her descendants are all of these. All of these. Now, these are Jews, and so with these. But Romans 11 says, those Jews that did not believe in Jesus who, according to this text here, had been deserted, distressed in spirit, rejected, and abandoned, they had been grafted out. Romans 11. Israel, that choose to reject God and even treat him, or at least his son, as if he were dead. Actually, they did kill him, remember. They were not a part of this new covenant. They were grafted out. But those who were a part of the remnant, they were grafted in as well as Jews and, uh, excuse me, as well as Gentiles. So who is it that is abandoned? Is he talking about Christians? Church, absolutely not. Isaiah, he's standing under the old covenant and he, he understands this, okay? He gets this picture. There are those who are called the nation of Israel, the chosen nation, but they have not experienced life at all. They are the ones that God has abandoned. They have turned away from them. But under the new covenant, it is still those who have rejected. But they are not a part of this new covenant, only the remnant. And then, of course, the Gentiles. So who are those who are abandoned under the new covenant? It's not you as a Christian who goes astray. It is Israel and it's all sinners. You and me at one time, church. You and me at one time, Jews or Gentiles, we had abandoned God. We had turned away from him to follow our own way. We had rejected him. We had abandoned him. We had treated him as if we were widows and he was dead. We stiff-armed him. We kept him away. But God said that he pursued us and called you. He called you as a sinner to himself. And he says this, here's his promise to you. I will never be angry with you again. Wow. I will never be angry with you again. Instead, what he promises, do you see that in verse 8? Everlasting kindness. No more anger. In the New Testament, it speaks of propitiation. Do you know what that big word actually means? It means that someone, in this case, Jesus, took my place and my punishment and my sin on himself, and I was found not guilty. Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one is turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. Jesus took our punishment. Jesus took our sins. And as a result, we are declared not guilty. Paul uses the term justified. Not guilty. And the promise here is not only will you not suffer his wrath, but you will not suffer shame as a result. 
Now understand, there, there's the conviction of the Spirit. See, that's good. The Spirit is convicting us. All that simply means, whether you're saved or not, we all experience the conviction of sin. All that means is that the Spirit is highlighting. You just committed sin. But with the believer in Jesus... There is now no more shame. There is no more condemnation. There is no more guilty, and therefore you are punished. So this shame, this guilt, this humiliation, this sense of deserving of punishment, this sense of unworthiness and having no value is not from God. That's the difference between the conviction of the Spirit and this guilt and shame that Isaiah is pointing out to us. The promise is you'll no longer experience that if you get Isaiah 53, if you get the fact that this servant, this man of sorrows, took your punishment and your sin. So in the beginning, I asked you, do you understand the cross? Because here's the truth. If you don't understand the cross or really get the full implications of the cross, you will wrestle with shame. Your past will hunt you down. You'll constantly be reminded of your sin and how unworthy you are. But we're in Christ. And in Christ, because Christ is worthy, he makes me worthy. I am not worthy in and of myself, but I stand in his righteousness. He secured this redemption for me. He bought me. We are his own. I want to see something here. The word compassion, it's used three times in this passage. Very significant word. Look at this, verse 7, verse 8, and then verse 10. This word compassion is an amazingly cool Hebrew word. It is the word raham, raham. Now, follow me here. It's translated compassion in my Bible, and as a noun, it, that's what it means. It means compassion, <clears throat> but it's, it especially reflects, get a load of this, a mother, her feelings toward her unborn child. A mother towards her unborn child, Raham. As a, because of this, the implication, it's translated sometimes in the Old Testament as womb. The verb means to caress, stroke. Like you could have a picture of an expectant mother caressing her belly, just feeling her belly her unborn child, and the love, the compassion she has for this child. But understand, there is something unique about every unborn child. Though every child is born into sin from Adam, I get that, but that child has done no acts of sin, no acts of sin. The mother holds nothing against that child. You see, compassion is what you have towards someone who is in a difficult situation and your heart goes out to them they're hurting 
Maybe they're lost, a little child lost in a mall. Wow, what a scary situation that was. I remember when I got lost at age three, I walked an entire mile from my dad's high school after a football game down to a gas station right across the main highway from our neighborhood. I have no clue how I got there, except that as a three-year-old, I walked. And they knew my parents because that's where they took their cars when they broke down. So unfortunately, they knew my parents really well. But uh, they called my parents, and they had gotten, one of my parents had gotten home. The other was looking for me, frantic, got the call, and drove and picked me up. I was lost, but I got found. And my parents had compassion on me. Then they spanked me. Okay, no, I'm just but they had compassion on me. I want you to imagine this. You have a pet cat, and you're stroking the pet cat, and the cat's purring. Okay, imagine that just for a moment. Some of you have mean cats, and so this, it's not going to work for you, okay? But you have a, a nice pet cat, and you're holding the cat, and this cat actually likes to be held. Some don't. And this one loves to be held, and they're purring, and you're just having a great time as you're stroking this kitty cat. And then all of a sudden, a door slams. What happens to that cat? jumps out of your arms, claws bared, scratches you down the front, and then jumps but lands and hurts its leg. What are you going to do? Get angry and kick the cat? No, you're going to have compassion, right? In her difficult situation, regardless of what the cat did to you, you're going to respond with compassion. The cat didn't necessarily do anything wrong. The cat is not guilty. You see, when God forgives all of our sins, we're declared not guilty. And he has compassion on us. He has, it's translated also pity and mercy. Pity, mercy, compassion, all of them are love, but in a different form. It's specifically for those who are disadvantaged, for those who are hurting, for those who are ashamed, who have been rejected, feeling abandoned and alone. And God looks upon us and he welcomes us, much like the father of the lost son when he sees him off in a distance. What does the father do? Look at his watch and say, what took you so long? No, it says he ran to him and he wept. He was so happy to see his son. That is a picture of a compassionate father who had forgiven him, held nothing against him, wasn't going to abandon or reject him, never, but loved him, wept over him. And he didn't just say, okay, now that you're back, this list of chores for you is a mile long. Get to work. He didn't say this. He says, Get the ring, get sandals, get a robe, kill the fattened calf. Well, he had me at killed the cat and fatted calf. Oh, yeah, come on. But, oh, right, this is a party. This is a celebration. This is the compassion of God. No more anger. Let me use another illustration that I, help, that I believe will help us. Many people, they look at God's anger, God's wrath. And they actually see God or view him as this little child throwing a temper tantrum. Yep, the people on earth, 
did something bad, and God throws a temper tantrum and just wipes them out, just punishes them, whatever. He's throwing a temper tantrum. Because when you sin, the Bible says, it incurs the wrath of God. But when we're Christians, that wrath is removed. The illustration is simply this. If you cut me, I will bleed. And if someone were to say, Mike, stop bleeding, I would say, I'm doing my best, but it keeps bleeding. It is inevitable. It is natural. I can't stop it. It is who I am. When we sin against God, there is nothing else that he can do but express wrath. That is his nature. That is who he is in defending his holiness. When God is cut, he bleeds, so to speak. But here's the beauty of it. As we move into the new covenant, our God did bleed. And when he bled, that is what keeps him from being angry. The wrath is gone. The anger is gone. God no longer bleeds for you. In his compassion, he calls you into this covenant with him. By the sacrifice and by the blood of his son, Jesus, all sins washed away. There is no foundation at all for shame, humiliation, feelings of abandonment, rejection. We're in a new covenant. The Bible calls this a covenant of peace. Do you see that there in verse 10? A covenant of peace. Now, I want to conclude with this. The word redeemer is used two times in this passage. Do you see them? First, in verse 5, and second, I'll find it here. There we go, verse 8. Redeemer. That means God purchased us. I'm going to share another illustration with you, except this isn't my own illustration. This is actually God's illustration, and he gives it to us to a contemporary prophet with Isaiah. His name is Hosea. In Hosea chapter 3, it says this. I'm going to read a few verses the Lord said to me. Before I read, understand, Gomer apparently had been a prostitute. Hosea was told to marry her. He did. They apparently had one child between them, but it appears as if the next two chi children were children of her adultery. She eventually leaves him, and now we pick up the story here. And I want you to imagine if you were in Hosea's place, how would you feel if God were to say this to you? Go, show your wife to your love again. Excuse me, show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn 
to other gods and love the sacred rice cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels. Do you know what 15 shekels will buy you? A woman's slave. He bought her for the price of a female slave. Why? Because church, she was a female slave. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or princes, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Understand this is now in the new covenant. That's when this is fulfilled. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings. And may I also add life in the last days. When are the last days? Bible says from the day of Pentecost to the time Jesus returns, we're in these last days. This is for you and for me. Understand something now, real briefly. Who was Gomer? Now, Gomer was married to Hosea, but apparently in her selling of herself for money, she became indebted. Somehow she became indebted and a man bought her for sex. We call that a sex slave. Gomer was a sex slave. This is a picture of the lost. This is a picture of who you and I were. We had become indebted to another and were their slave for what? To fill our appetites. I don't know if you've ever heard testimonies of women who have been sold into sex slavery and human trafficking. It is horrible. But God says, that's you and me. But Hosea, pursue her. Pursue her and redeem her. Call her to yourself and allow her that time to repent. It'll be many days. And when she does, the remnant under the new covenant when she does, she will enter into this covenant with me and into the covenant of her King David, who is Jesus. And I will pour out blessing upon blessing upon blessing, including the promise of life. You see, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here's my question that I'm going to close with. Today, are you wrestling with shame, with disgrace, then I want to call you, grasp the true deep implications of the cross, of what Jesus has done for us, that he has called you out of this slavery and this darkness into a relationship, a covenant relationship with him, and he washes away your sin never, ever to be held against you because your God bled for you, and he will never bleed again. Your God gave himself for you and bought you to be his own and only his. Should you sin, there is no disgrace. There is no shame. 
because there's no widowhood. He has called you to be your own, his own. He's purchased you. You belong to him. You're his precious possession with whom he, will, he promises he will never be angry again with because of this covenant of peace through Jesus. I want to ask you, could we dim the lights? I just want right now for the Holy Spirit to minister the truth of these implications to your heart. You know, sometimes we just have to wrestle with truth. Kasong, in the story, he didn't understand the love of God. He didn't understand it, how deep it was that God would forgive him and love him. But sometimes truth is hard to understand. Maybe that's where you're at today. You know about the cross, yes. But do you really know about the cross? You have a choice. You can continue to wallow in this shame, in this guilt, because the lies of the enemy keep coming at you, or you can embrace this truth. Let's do that right now. Can we? Father, teach us this truth. Help us, God. This truth is so deep, so vast. God, today we can say we get it, and tomorrow we're back at square one, it seems. Take this truth and settle it in our hearts. Take this truth and allow it to percolate down past all of the emotions and all the feelings that we have from day to day. And let that truth resound strongly, echoing in our ears. My God, my Redeemer has rescued me. There is no shame. There is no humiliation. He has not abandoned me. He has bled for me. And he has secured me in this covenant of peace. I belong to him. Thank you, God, for this amazing love. You are so good. Heal. Today, God, heal our hearts, please. And show us Jesus again. In Jesus' name I pray.